working, we engage with researchers, academics, and policymakers on some of the most important public policy questions facing workforce development and criminal justice reform. In this episode, however, we will be meeting with someone who has lived criminal justice policy to get his take on what should come next in criminal justice policy, prison culture, and the impact of COVID-19 on correctional institutions. Our guest today is Chris Wilson, author of The Master Plan, My Journey from a Life in Prison to a Life of Purpose. At the age of 17, Chris was sentenced to life in prison. Since the state of Maryland had just passed a life means life policy, Chris's chances of being paroled were next to zero. Despite the toxic nature of prison culture, his long sentence, and the multiple traumas he experienced as a child and teenager, including domestic violence, torture, and poverty, Chris never gave up. He used his time in prison to develop his own master plan, a list of goals to help him become the man he wanted to be. He found others in prison who had similar goals, who helped mentor him, and then he became a mentor to others. His master plan helped him earn a high school diploma, an associate's degree, and learn multiple languages, as well as a skilled trade, all while an inmate. Against all odds, his master plan worked, and Chris was paroled after 16 years behind bars. Chris's story of redemption and empowerment didn't end when he was released from incarceration. Despite all that was taken from him during those years behind bars, Chris is giving back to his community and to other returning citizens. He is the founder of the Barclay Investment Corporation, a social enterprise contracting firm that helps returning citizens and others with barriers to employment find and keep jobs. He's also the owner of the House of Da Vinci, a high-end furniture company, and Master Plan Productions, a video production company. Chris Wilson, thank you for joining us today on Hardly Working. So Chris, we're in the middle of a coronavirus epidemic, and it's really been weighing on my mind kind of how that epidemic might be playing out in prisons. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about what's happening, what you think might be happening in prisons, how it's affecting people. What are some of the special challenges that go along with dealing with coronavirus in prison? I guess I should start by saying I recovered from the virus. I I got sick towards the end of January. That's probably one of the the first people being impacted by it. And doctors didn't know what I had. And my health deteriorated over a period of couple of days. And I went back to the hospital and they still didn't know what was wrong with me. And so I was really sick for a long time, about 15 days. Thankfully, I'm recovering. I still have some significant lung damage. What we see now all across the country, all around the world, prisons are really being impacted by this virus, especially because it's super difficult, if not impossible, for them to social distance themselves from each other and also have access to like masks, hand sanitizer, and stuff like that. And the other thing, probably the most challenging thing is how do we get people to care or our government leaders, how do we get them to care about this particular population during a time when everyone's dying and everyone's resources are stretched? And so like that's that's the biggest challenge I think we're facing. I'm not sure I have an answer to that. It is a really significant challenge. I mean, apart from sort of you know, the fact that prison populations are invisible to us for the most part because they're isolated from society. There's also the question of how do we prioritize limited resources? I hope that governors and wardens and the federal government are paying attention. There was some additional money in the 
COVID relief package for state and federal prisons to help bring more resources into the prisons. But it's a small amount of money, I think, relative to the scale of the problem that we've got. Right. Yeah, I think it's really a matter of like getting inside people's heads about this and like getting them to imagine. Imagine if it were your loved one behind bars it was in a cramped space where illness was present and nothing to help mitigate the infection. So I do think we just need to try to keep this issue in front of policymakers so that I agree. it doesn't get forgotten. So you've got this great book, The Master Plan, and I'd like you to start with us on that. Tell us about the book, how you came up with the title, what it means to you, what you think the big themes are that you work on in the book. Of course. I decided to write this book when I was 19. I was two years in on a life sentence in a maximum security prison. And it started with me just staring out the window when I was in a rec room about, about this size with about 60 people in there. And it was a lot of stuff going on. It was people getting tattoos, people doing push-ups, people shooting dice, people arguing over the phone. It was all this madness. And I was 118 pounds. And I was like, how did I end up in prison? And like, I'm a good dude. And I knew that I committed a crime, but I was like, these men came after me. Like, I didn't start this. Like, how did I end up with life? And then I started thinking, you know, I'm book smart too, by the way. And it's like, I could read a 300 page book in like two days and remember, retain like 70% of what I read. And, you know, I was on a chess team and I played the cello, but I never really applied myself because people around me was like, that's not cool. You should, you should be more into sports and stuff like that. And so I never pushed myself. And so around this time in the day room, when I was thinking about that, I met this one guy who I talk about in the book, Stephen, who eventually became my mentor, but he also had life sentence and he was about a year older than me. And he was teaching himself computer programming out in the rec room where all this stuff happening in the rec room, all this madness. And here he was studying. So I asked him what he was working on. And he says, I'm going to teach myself computer programming. I'm going to get out of prison. I'm going to start a software company. I'm going to buy my dream car. And I remember laughing at him. I was like, dude, you don't even have a computer. How are you going to pull this off? And he looked at me and he says, it, it don't matter. And he says, look around. He says, they've taken everything from us. He says, but like nobody can take this from us. Mm -hmm. So it was like, that's, the, that's how we get out of here is that we educate ourselves. And so I started thinking about that. I went back over into my corner and I was like, I got to come up with a plan. I need a master plan, right? And so I locked myself into my cell for about three days and I had some blank sheets of paper and I started writing down things that I wanted to accomplish. And some of it, right, even writing a book, like I tried to take some stuff out of it because I was embarrassed. You know, I was young when I wrote it, but, you know, my publisser was like, leave it in there, you know? And so I wanted to educate myself. I knew like that would be the path to me getting out and being successful. I wanted to start, study business. I wanted to be able to travel the world. I hadn't been anywhere in my life. I wanted to buy my dream car, a black Corvette convertible with nice rims, I think I wrote. <laughs> and some of the stuff was just like, you know, I wanted to pair a cool shades that I always wanted and people that I wanted to meet. But to sum it up, like I, it was about two pages and I sent a copy to my grandmother because I felt like any master plan, you have to share it with someone and give them permission to hold you accountable. It's like, having a workout partner. When you go to the gym, when you have that partner on days that you're slacking, they're going to say, ain't you supposed to be at the gym? Ain't you supposed to be working on something? And so I shared it with my grandmother and then I sent a copy to my judge and then I taped the copy on my wall. And after that, I just started studying and just started going to school and opening up in therapy. And the idea of the book, the book was something that I wrote on a master plan. It was like, I want to 
have a book published that inspires people. And it was tricky for me because I hadn't done anything positive up until that point. And so my logic was, I'm going to really like open up in therapy and educate myself. And when I get out, I am going to be successful. I am going to, um, I didn't know what social entrepreneurship meant back then. I don't think the term existed, but I said that I want to make a, I want to start a business where I can make money that I, but I also help people or help my environment, my community. And so that was my goal. And the tricky part was it was that I had to get out and do all those things. And so I ended up, spending 16 and a half years in prison and I got out and moved to Baltimore and the plan kept me guided. So I went back to school. I knew education was important. I wanted to leverage the networks at the universities to, to hopefully get a job, which I did. And as I started accomplishing more things on my master plan and winning awards, including a presidential award from Obama, reaching financial independence and working in really tough communities and solving problems, that's when I was like, all right, I've done a lot. I think it's time for the book. I think I can, I can accurately say that I'm successful. And so mm-hmm. that's when I broached the um, conversation of how do I publish a book? And so two years later, you know, the master plan is there. So. That's, that's a fantastic story. I want there, There's so much there that I want to unpack. I'd like to back up just a little bit and have you talk about that moment that you said, how did I get here? So talk about that a little bit. What was that moment like? What did you, what was your answer to yourself when you, when you asked that question? So I didn't have an answer to it. It was a, it was a state of confusion and shock. It was already like sobering. And, you know, I was thinking about, even when I was thinking, I was actually, it was a a correctional officer that was working in tear that day. And it was even how they looked at us. And we was just a number. I was Wilson. I was 265975. And I kept thinking about the way my mom raised me and the things that she instilled in me. And I was like, but I'm a good person. I, I just was confused. Like, how did I end up here? And, you know, the reality was on paper, I committed a charge and I was no longer deemed a good person. And I just, I was struggling with that. And so in the book, I call it a positive delusion where I just had to trick myself or delude myself into believing that like, I'm a good person and I'm going to be free one day. And if that's the case, what do I need to do to be ready for that? Right. And so I just started believing in this, this crazy delusion. Right. Like it would work. And even when people, even my friends was like, dude, (laughs) you're not going home, man. Like look around. And it was other people in that rec room who had been there for 30 years or 40 years. And what they told me was, get comfortable youngin, cause like you're not going home. And I was just like, I, I just don't believe you guys. And I'm naturally a stubborn person and I used to be stubborn and like in the wrong ways. And I was like, I just right. applied the, the stubbornness to something positive and said, well, I'm, I'm just not going to believe it. And, and it was actually the only way I could do my time is to believe that I wouldn't be there forever. Cause I don't, I can't imagine just getting comfortable and, and accepting that I would grow old and die in it. So it wasn't just the the corrections system, the people in charge of the corrections system that were telling you the negative lie about yourself. Right. But it was really the people around you as well, right? I mean, the the other prisoners. Yeah. That's somewhat underappreciated factor is kind of like the assumptions on which the institution operates. That That was the mindset I just adopted in order for me to get through it. 
and it was things I knew I needed to do, but I just didn't know how to do it. And I could, I could read really well, right? I had good reading, but it was like, I, I can't do math. And it's all this stuff that I need to like learn in order like to get my high school diploma. I just don't know how to do it. And my strategy was reach out to folks who know how to do it. Even if I had to give them a, a few, we had cigarettes back then as currency. Okay. Even if I had to give them a few packs of cigarettes, which I was doing like often like to learn stuff. And people were like confused. Like, let me get this straight. You want me, you're giving me two cartons of cigarettes in order to get on the vocational list to learn carpentry. Why would you even want to do that? Like you're not going home. Like what are you going to do with the skills? And I just be like, but I am going home and people would be mm-hmm. like, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. And it was, it was just odd. And people was just like, yeah, he, he's a little delusional. He thinks he's getting out. Who uh, was it another prisoner keeping the list of, of yeah. yeah. So prisoners, you know, despite what, what the public believe, like prisoners usually run the day to day operations in prisons. And so like the prison officials and correctional officers just, you know, their job is to keep you safe and keep you from breaking out. But like the day-to-day operations, it's usually like someone who's been down 30 years, they control the list, they control everything. And surprisingly, right, <laughs> the vocational shop was co-ed. So female prisoners and male prisoners went to a carpentry shop or plumbing shops and, and went to school together and in, in high school. So you can imagine how that was. Right? <laughs> so, so like when they get pregnant every couple of months and it was like, you know, people who've been in relationships for years. And I was new to the prison. And so my strategy was I went to the to people who controlled the list. And I said, you know, I want to learn how to work all this equipment because I want to get out and I'm going to be a contractor. I'm going to make a ton of money. And I get what's going on. I see what's going on around here. I'm going to mind my business. But I, I want you to show me how to use the machines. And in exchange, whenever like correctional officers or people come around, we had like these signals that we would give out when the correctional officers came through. And they, they would be in the back or doing whatever they do. And I would just be learning the equipment. <laughs> and like, if I saw something unusual, I would like signal. But in exchange, they taught me everything in the, in the vocational shop. So I got in. It's, it's a two-year program. I completed the program in 13 months. And then I built a lot of stuff, ping pong tables and barn houses and roof rafters. And I learned a lot of stuff. And that was the goal. That's vocational education. You also talked about therapy, which I want you to, yeah. to talk more about. But I also, I want to hear about other kind, the other kinds of education that you engaged in whatever. Right. Members. So after um, I graduated from vocational shop, there were rumors of a college program coming to the prison. And I was a little intimidated. I was like, man, I don't, I like working with my hands. I don't know if I'm like ready for college or whatever. And so a lot of people got a chance to apply. I think 150 people like applied. And only 20 people got accepted. I was like number 20. So I barely made it in. And they suggested that I needed to take remedial math. And, you know, it was in college when I first got in there. And and quite honestly, like once I got into college and I was taking like first year English and and like the the basic class in college, I was lost. And I was like, like, I was confused. Like, what's a verb? What's like an adjective? And and people were laughing at me. It was like, dude, you don't know this stuff? And I was like, I... Nah, I don't know it. Like I was struggling with everything. Which college was it? Anne Arundel Community College in Maryland. And so it was a pilot program that they wanted to see like, you know, what would happen if we, you know, we provided like college education. And so I got in, but, and the professors would come in to lecture us. And I just remember how tough they were on us. right? (laughs) And I remember my professor saying, 
like taking that red pen and marking up my papers and said, this is garbage and you have nothing but time. So there's no excuse for you like to get this stuff wrong or mess up. And so they would give me tons of books. I was like, go read it, go fix it. You know, it was kind of like the, the, the soup Nazi on, on Soundfield. Like it was like very strict, right? But, no but food I, for you. Yeah, no food, yeah. <laughs> no soup for you, right? So it was very tough. But I, I found that I thrived under that kind of environment. And I started studying and drinking coffee. And I kind of fell in love with learning because, you know, I was taking like history and I started learning about people who done like amazing things and like the French Revolution and like the Pope and like all this stuff around the world and reading about learning about the civil rights movement and people who look like me who would like dress up nice and sit in for like equal rights and people will pour food on their head and spit in their faces. When I started learning and studying, my I, started, I became a straight A student, but I also started feeling ashamed of myself. Because I was, I was reading about all these movements and all these things that happened in the world. And here I was, someone who didn't know his history and committed a terrible crime and was locked up. Wasted, wasted potential. And I could have done something great. And so that, that bothered me for, for like about a year. And I was reading about Frederick Douglass in college. And I remember when it was a part when the slave master, I actually start my book with a, like a quote from Frederick Douglass when he was, the slave master's mistress was teaching him how to read. And the slave master said, imagine, you don't teach him that. Imagine how dangerous they would be if they could read or if they, if they were intelligent. And it was an aha moment for him. And while in college, that's what sparked it in me. And I hmm. said, you know what? Just like my friend Steven told me a few years ago, I was like, nobody can take this from me. And I said, I know I'm getting out. And so when I get out, I'm going to be ready. And so I just started crushing my college work. And then I would reach out to my professors and ask for more, more books. They would bring in books to read. And it was like, what's wrong with you? And it's like, just give me more. Give me more. Yeah, and yeah. I started studying foreign languages. I started with Italian. My professors were super um, supportive. I was reading a newspaper. And the University of Maryland College Park published a paper. And they were doing research to figure out how do people learn a second language. And so I wrote to the college and I said, well, you know, I'm learning, studying a second language and I want to start a, a language program in the prison. And they wrote back to one of the teachers that was running the college program to see if I was for real, if this was, if I was a real person. Mm. And so they vouched for me and they ended up funding the program, University of Maryland College Park and um, Anne Arundel Community College. And I started a foreign language class. And, you know, the best way to learn a language or, or to learn anything is to teach it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I started teaching for years and I went from Italian and went to study Spanish and then went to study Mandarin. And I just kept learning. And then I started studying how to learn and I just fell in love with college. And that was the thing that really opened me up. But the therapy trajectory was a bit different. So, well, before we go to that, what was your favorite thing to study while you were in prison? History. History. Any particular kind? Maybe uh, the, the French Revolution around that era. I think I write about this in my book, where I fell in love with Napoleon. And most people would say, well, he's, he's a warmongerer or what, but what I liked about him and what inspired me about him, besides my history teacher who was like nuts, he would come in and it would be like he was on a ledge speaking to the troops. And so he was a very passionate history teacher. But what inspired me about studying like the French Revolution and history during that era was that Napoleon wasn't French. 
So he was technically like Italian, like he didn't speak good French. Corsican. Yeah, he was Corsican. Yeah, he was short and a little greasy and like he was awkward around women, awkward around everyone. But he compensated by studying, studying military strategy. And he would exchange books with like his friends and, and just, and he would wait for his moment. And so that's what I was inspired by. Mm-hmm. I was like, I could spend my time studying this entire incarceration. And if I get my opportunity, which he did, I could show like how intelligent I am and what I could accomplish. And so that's, that's something like that I adopted, I guess, like from him, even though he didn't know when to quit too. So he just, he couldn't chill and kept going to war with people. That was his downfall. So I, I learned from that. But what I took from it was just wait for my moment and then make sure I'm ready. And so college like really opened me up. And even when I graduated, they still provided like classes. And if it was a class that I didn't take, you know, psychology class or something, I would take it because it was free and I felt that it would be useful. And so, and I stayed in touch with all my professors. Even now, that was years ago, like I have a really, really tight relationship with all of my professors and still with all of the universities. And I'm fascinated by it. You know, when we talk about education in prisons, everyone immediately thinks about the woodworking class or the vocational technical. But the really transformative stuff, it sounds like for you, was you know, the study of history and language and these yeah. things that had the effect of kind of opening up your imagination. In, in essence, exactly it, allowed right. to, it allowed you to leave prison while you were still in prison, you know. and, and That's you, exactly right. That's terrific. That's amazing. I'm a history, I was a history major too, so oh, I, nice. yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you, I know exactly what you mean. Let's shift now. So you have education on one side, which is the gaining of knowledge and skill and it has a it has a personal transformative impact, obviously. Okay. But you are also going through therapy, and I'm really interested in that because I think that that's that's also underappreciated. I don't think it's done totally. often, not done very well in prison. But I'd like to hear about your experience. So at the program that I was in, it was it was at, I was at Patuxent was the name of the institution, and it was a youth program, which was people who committed their crimes under the age of 21. But we were charged as adults inside of a maximum security prison. And so part of the program policy was that you had to go to school and you had to go to therapy and you had to work a job. If you weren't doing those three things, you couldn't be in the prison. And so I had to go to therapy whether I liked it or not. And it was like, you know, group therapy with about 10 people and then individual group therapy I had and anger management, drug treatment, all that stuff. And for two years, I didn't say anything. Wow. And I was just so uncomfortable. Sit in group therapy and not say anything. Say anything. And like people, like any, like, you know, once a year, you're supposed to talk about your charge, why you're here. Couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And my biggest thing, my fear was, is like, I had been through so much stuff that I wrote about in the book. I was ashamed. And I also felt that people in my group just wouldn't understand. And like, it was stuff that's so painful to talk about it. I would probably cry. And I was like, people would probably laugh at me, probably think something's wrong with me. But when I eventually opened up, and it was, it was something that happened that made me open up. But when I eventually opened up, I started to realize that everyone in my group, we had all been through the same things. It was a pivotal moment in my rehabilitation. And it started with, we had to do a group called Victims Impact Group where victims of crimes out of society would come into the prison. It was about maybe three or six, three to five months. And they would come in once a week and you would have a group with them and they would talk about what it's like to be a victim step by step. You know, someone breaks into your car, 
and you know you work you work in two jobs and you have insurance and you got to pay like this deductible and like get your car fixed and get to work and everything all those hassles and stuff that folks who are out here committing crimes like us don't think about and so we got a chance to hear about that but it was one particular person who I write about in the book this woman she talked about how her car got broken into and folks in the group was like man you got insurance you just get you get a new car you get a new radio or whatever and she pulled out a picture of a, this woman and she was like what you think about her and it was a pretty woman i was like she she's she's pretty like you know what's up and she, she passed around everybody's like yeah she's cute she was like yeah it was my daughter and she says two men thought she was cute too and when she got out of school one day they grabbed her or they pulled her into the woods and they raped her and then they stabbed her and then they cut her body up and set her on fire and i remember how i felt when she was describing it and i was like oh my god like how like how can someone do that to another person and that's what i was thinking and then she says these guys who done that they were monsters like you guys and i was like that's how she she sees me like i couldn't do that to a person right and when she left and we went back to the tear the guys who were in my group some of them most of them were laughing about it i said i would have done the same thing and what I said to myself, I was like, there are monsters out here. And I was like, I could never do something like that to a person. And I said, this is, I got to open up and group. I can't just say like, yeah, I'm good. I'm not going to do this anymore or whatever. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to break law. I got to really like open up to figure out how I got into prison and how I could stay out. And so that's when I just started talking like, listen, you know, this is what I'm here for. This was my crime. And, you know, I watched my mom you know, be sexually assaulted in front of me. And this is how I felt. Oh, you know, I was bullied. All this stuff like happened to me and I just was angry. And, you know, I'm not a violent person. I just didn't want, any, want people to keep bothering me and just started opening up and it changed me. Mm. It was when I genuinely started feeling remorse and that was six years into my incarceration. So how did that change? Did they have a change for the dynamic of the group as well as for you? Yeah. And it's one of those things like you open up and, you know, there's these preconceived notions of like you soft if you open up. Or if I talk about, you know, I knew it was a gun in the house and I knew where it was at when my mom was being attacked. And even though like I was punched and like, you know, barely like conscious, I still had a thought that I could grow. I could run, get that gun and use it to protect my mom. But I didn't want to hurt anyone. And so even explaining that in therapy, it's like, you know, it's tears running down my face. And it kind of gave the courage to other people in the group to open up. Like one of my people in my group, he had killed someone who like did something to somebody, right? And he spit on them and they traced the DNA and they locked him up. He was 15. They gave him 50 years, I think. And once he got to the prison, people found out where his mom lived at. And they went to the house with shotgun and they, they blew his mom's head off. And he went crazy. And this was, he was in my group and I watched him go crazy. I write about it. And he, like, he's never coming home now. He, he lost his mind in there. But like what I started to realize, what we all started to realize in the therapy setting that where we were growing up at society had obviously like failed us, our school systems, all that stuff. And that we had experienced tremendous trauma. And so once we understood this, we had to figure out ways how to cope with this trauma through therapy and even like I'm st I still go to therapy. I go to, I do therapy once a week. Now that I'm zooming and staying in touch is just how, how you get through it. 
Yeah, yeah, that's tremendous. That's a really powerful story. And I have a psychiatrist friend who does group therapy with people, you know, not people in prison, but he always talks about how how much further people can go in a group therapy setting than they can kind of on their own and how much faster it goes when you're in a group doing that kind of therapy. That's really an amazing story of kind of being the person to kind of break the logjam for the entire group right? just by opening up. That's amazing, Chris. I wish we could bottle that and get it into the prisons because I, I get the sense from talking to people like it's for many people who are doing therapy in prison, it's like it's a box to check. I have to do this, but it's not approached in a serious way, either by prison or by the prisoners. And so it doesn't have nearly the effect that it could. It'd be a powerful tool if used correctly, yeah. especially like it, it takes both sides for like, you know, the therapist to be genuine and folks to be able to open up. And so I got a chance to, to do it. It's something that's it's a critical component to my life now. So I've been in therapy a long time, particularly in the African-American community. We tend not to talk about therapy or we see it as like, you know, maybe we're broken or whatever, but like, I see it as a sign of strength. Like I've been through stuff, you know, I've been kidnapped, I've been tortured. I've seen people killed in front of me, have trouble sleeping. And a lot of people have, have been through stuff like this or have witnessed it. You got to get help. You got to get treatment and it doesn't make you weak. Is there a race angle to this as well? Like therapy is for white people? Well, the thing is, it's like, you know, I was literally just talking about this this morning. Like, it's tough as hell just being black, a black man in America, where, you know, we want to take care of our families. We want to we want to solve problems. So we have to be tough. A strong component of therapy is that you have to be vulnerable. You got to open up. You got to you got to like lay everything out and you got to you got to dissect it and figure out what led to what and how do you move forward. And that's a that's a painful, scary position to put yourself in. And that's why I think it's important for us to talk about it and let people know, like, I'm, you know, I'm not broken. Like, I've, I've become successful. But I, and I think, like, exploring it, this vulnerability is a sign of strength. I mean, I, it doesn't I agree. make me weak. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, when you say you're not broken, I think it's better to think about that we're all broken. We're just broken in different ways. And that's something that actually you can unite around. We all face these struggles. So what are prisons actually for, do you think? Why, are, why do they exist? I think they're supposed to exist. You know, they call them correctional facilities to correct, you know, any like social deviances or whatever that people engage in or whatever, like, you know, or the way society has felt, particular like populations. It's also honestly like, designed to punish, but being away from society is the punishment. Everything else should be about rehabilitation, but that's not what prison is. And so what it is now, and it's about punishment. And it's, it's politically sensitive, especially for our legislators and people in charge to like really address what prison is supposed to be about rehabilitation, because I advocate often on Capitol Hill and in Annapolis in my state, in the state of Maryland. And it could be a legislative bill that's about therapy and education that will really like help people like change and get out of prison and stay out of prison, which will save the state money and they can take the savings and put that money into our school systems. But it's too sensitive when, you know, someone to say, well, what about that, that single mother that was stabbed 47 times by this 15 year old that done this or whatever. And we got to protect our community from people like this. 
And I usually push back and say, let's think about all of those times that society has failed that young person before they committed that crime. The things that they saw at their school, not having counselors in their school and people being killed and like robbed and, and violence in their communities and no therapist or someone, counselor to sit down and talk to them to help them come up with strategies to cope with the trauma that they experience or them being bullied, all these things, right, that, that happen every day. And we just react when that person breaks. And so this is information like that we all know, but we fail these folks. It's a matter of conveying that message to people. But like at the end of the day, honestly, I've been advocating for about eight years since I've been home from prison. Folks in power still don't care. Most of them mm-hmm. they still don't. And so maybe, maybe the strategy is to speak to the economics of how much money our states spend to keep people incarcerated. And that's, is that really the best use of taxpayers' money? The economics of it don't make any sense at all. But what I've found is that Americans broadly have this conception that, yeah, it's expensive, but it's not as expensive as having dangerous people on the street. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah. But but it's like, when you think about the violence avoided and the loss of life and property and everything, that's a pretty good deal. We're getting something for our money. Right. So, and I hear that all the time. And so my pushback is this. All right. I'm a taxpaying citizen, law-abiding citizen now. I live in a nice neighborhood. And in our neighborhood in Baltimore, sometimes we have to deal with people breaking into our cars. Everyone in my neighborhood drives nice cars or whatever. So folks like to come through, check, check doorknobs or whatever, and they'll break in your car or whatever, right? And so I use a, a scenario to say, all right, someone breaks into your car, takes your radio, you come out, you're going to work or you're going to the gym or whatever, your, your window is broke, you upset. I would be pissed and I would want someone to pay for that, right? So a person gets locked up for breaking into your car and they should, right? And so while they're in prison, and who knows the backstory of this person or what they went through or whatever, but like, let's not focus on that right now. They're in prison right now. If they don't have anything to do, what they're going to do is figure out how to be a better criminal, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. I I grew up in prison. It's like, all right, dude, you shouldn't have broke into the car. You got to get into the house. That's what real stuff is. Mm -hmm. And so they, they trade notes. How do you beat your case? All that stuff. But if there's opportunities for therapy, educational opportunities, that same energy that someone has spent breaking into cars, they can channel that into, let's say, the mechanics shop. Instead of breaking in cars, you can fix cars. You can go into therapy and you can figure out what led you to prison and figure out different things. And so I'm a prime example. Once I started like educating myself and learning like these skill sets that like no one could take away from me, I started thinking about this, the stupid shit that I did when I was young was like, why was I even doing this? And it wasn't just me. It was everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and in the college programs and the vocational programs that was, that was thinking like this. And so when these folks come home, they don't break the law. There's data, there's science that supports this. Even a little bit of education, they don't go back because they get out, they're more employable. They reacclimate better to their community. They, they communicate better with their families, everything. And so this is, this is science, right? This is the best return for taxpayers, like money. And people could say, well, the alternative is they come out, they break into your house, they tie your family up or whatever, which is stupid. And it's like, this is, the, this is what works. And so folks, legislators who still won't like listen or like budge, knowing like what the data like supports and stuff like everyone I went to college with, like I researched this, it was about 150 of us who made it through the college program at Patuxent. Every single one of us are home and doing well. 
And most of us, half of us went back to get additional college degrees. The real question there is like, did the education change the people and therefore they did better? Or had those people already made a decision like you did? You know, there was an internal shift away right. from sort of a mentality of crime toward a, a pro-social mentality. And that's where the drive came from to actually engage in the programming. So this is how I think it works, right? And I'll use myself as an example. So it takes like a leap of faith, right? So it takes someone that people like respect or whatever, or just like, you know, you seem like a decent dude, you're one of us. That person takes that leap of faith. And I write about a guy, I think his name was Didi, who was like a tough guy from Baltimore. And he, he saw us studying and he was like, I'm going to go sit down with y'all. Can y'all help me get my, my high school diploma? And you take that leap of faith and, you, you know, it's, it's confidence building to like accomplish and learn things that before seem very challenging to learn. Quadratic equation, like learning like how to like solve all these math problems or word problems, using logic, becoming a critical thinker. You just start to look at your life differently. When people see that, they're like, oh, Chris, did he, he got his high school diploma in two months? And like, I want to try. And so initially, folks take that leap of faith and say, I'm going to experiment with this. If you guys, if this is what y'all say it is, let me experiment with it. And then once they start seeing those rewards and getting mm-hmm. that feedback from the professors, like, this is really good work. Like, you, like we discover things that's inside of us. And right. once we discover them, it's like, why would I want to break into your car? Right. <laughs> it's, just, it's just stupid. Like, yeah, I want my own car. <laughs> yeah, I want my own car. Like, <laughs> you start doing the math of like, what, what, what does it cost for my lawyer? And like all these fees yeah. and home monitoring, like, it's dumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's really, really <laughs> interesting. I'd like to have you reflect a little bit on if you got to sit down with Governor Hogan or Governor Cuomo or whoever and give them the three things or two things or however many you can think of, but the things that need to change, what are they? I mean, like, I guess the first thing that I would say, I would just make sure I, I convey my sympathy of what's happening, especially in Maryland, especially here in New York, especially in New York, the epicenter of the level of suffering and loss that's taking place, right? That would be like the first thing that I would convey. Yeah, Yeah, the coronavirus. And the second would be like that this population, prison population, they don't deserve to die. Like despite them committing crimes and everything, like they just don't deserve it. It, It's not right. And I I would employ them to consider like ways to keep them safe. And, and so that would be like one thing. And, you know, the other thing is just not just keeping them safe, but, but also like challenging the prison population to use this moment as like a reset. And so, and what I mean is like, I spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. I think once I did 117 days and some shorter spurts and like as, as traumatic as it is, because most of our population right now is on lockdown or some form of isolation. It was like to mental stuff. And like using this time to reset and educate myself and think about like when we get out, how we can be productive and how, how precious life is. And so I would encourage like these governors, this is things that they can do. And, and we can challenge our population, even in tough times, especially in prison, because we hear on social media, a lot of people complaining, about oh, I've been in my house all this time or whatever. It's like it's, they're, they're going through much worse scenarios, but we're also, we've been through it before. And so 
I would challenge them that could support them during these times. And so one of the things that I've been working on for the past couple of months is I've been working with a tablet company that provides educational programming at no cost to the um, inmates or their families. And we got folks like Zoom to come on board, Khan Academy, all these content providers at no cost. And the message is like, we're going through this, this pandemic, but we can come out stronger. And we should communicate that message to our prison population of that. Like, we understand that your punishment is being away from your family, but you can come back better and you should. And here's how you can do it. And so I would just encourage governors to support like programming, support just keeping them safe, hand sanitizer, and just doing what they what they supposed to do because these are real people. Yeah, that is a really great place for us to end this, which is to remind everyone that prisoners are people. Absolutely. They have an inherent dignity that even their crimes they've committed can't take away from them, that we need to honor that and to help those who, especially those who are on the precipice of change, right? The folks who are are on the same kind of journey that you were on, helping them, supporting that change, not because it's good for them, although it is good for them, but because it's good for us. It's good for all of us. It's good for the entire country. Okay, well, Chris Wilson, thank you so much for joining us on Hardly Working. I encourage everyone to pick up the book, The Master Plan, My Journey from Life in Prison to a Life of Purpose. And you can get that on Amazon and in bookstores when they reopen. Again, a really inspiring story, and I really appreciate your time. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, great having you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.